Welcome to the Chicago Camp's 2017 Prototypes, Process, and Play Design Leadership Conference Podcast, sponsored by Balsamic. With Balsamic mockups, anyone can design great interfaces. And in partnership with Simplecast. Publish your podcast the easy way at simplecast.fm. This podcast features Eli Silva, Senior Product Designer at Pivotal Labs, and his presentation, Design for Diversity in Organization Design, from August 11th, 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, Eli. Thank you all so much for sticking around. I know that the end of a conference is usually when people start checking out. I want to talk a little bit today about what it means to be a minority in design, what it means to have accountability for design, and what it means to design for crisis. So in 2012, Hurricane Sandy swept across the Upper East Coast and took out large portions of New Jersey and New York City. There were many casualties. People were challenged by the response, by the size and scale of the disaster. And people didn't really know what the Red Cross was doing other than giving press releases. ProPublica ran a whole series of articles in a long-form investigation about abuses and organizational decisions that kept the Red Cross from being effective in 2012. I was on the other side working with Occupy Sandy, and this is what we did. This particular approach, designing for crisis, has shaped the way I design, has shaped the way I think about users, and has shaped the way I hold myself accountable as a designer ever since. One of the things that we did was design waypoints for people who needed to find resources, needed to find food, shelter, know where help was, get information, communicate that power lines were down, or that they had somebody stuck in an apartment somewhere. We designed that, and we designed it very quickly. And we designed it under conditions of crisis. And not only did we design it, we were more effective in many ways than the Red Cross, a large organization with a $2 billion budget that had been established to deal with situations like this. Because of organization design, we were able to move effectively, recruit 60,000 volunteers, according to Wikipedia, and provide food, shelter, comfort, communication, access to the internet for people in everywhere from New York to New Jersey. And we were able to move supplies into the area by communicating across the country in a distributed network. Occupy Sandy was my first organizational or organization design exposure. And it was building an organization to meet real human needs. But not only did we do that, later the next year, during tornado season, some tornadoes hit near Oklahoma City. We scaled that model. The lessons that we had learned from Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Sandy, and we applied them in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma, and we took six cities that had been hit by various tornadoes, and we were able to move over a million dollars worth of aid. And you can see an example of that right here. And I take no credit for that. It was something that we did together. It was something that we built together by having a strong community, a strong culture, 
and resilient organizations where we could talk about failures openly and honestly. We live in an age where tech bros have decided that it's okay to make trade-offs that impact people's lives. And that's simply not acceptable. And so I want to talk a little bit about advanced persistent neglect. These are real type of heads that used to be in the Google search engine in 2013. I'll let you just take those in for a moment. The UN ran this campaign to call out Google for sexism because these type of heads were there and they were catering to the lowest common denominator of bias. You can look it up. It's the UN Google campaign. But these type of heads show that if you build a technology without considering the moral implications, you can hurt people. You can hurt women. You can hurt minorities. You can hurt well-meaning people. And Google is in the news a lot these days. But every single day, the products that we ship as designers show the world what we care about. And we heard from Jared yesterday that that's Conway's Law. So there it is. Thanks, Jared. If we had paid maybe closer attention to these type of heads, we might have known that the Google investigation for wage discrimination against women was coming. We might have known that Google supports a culture where that kind of thing is possible if we had watched the products that they were putting out. Because the products tend to reflect the organization. Approximately 86% of all working designers are Caucasian. That's how you get products like a Juicero, by the way. Top universities graduate black and Hispanic students at twice the rate that they are hired. The pipeline is not the problem. So what does this mean? There are some assumptions playing out on both sides, right? In product design, this is the lessons that we, these are the lessons we've learned over the past 30, 50 years. Scrap everything. Start over, test, test again, challenge assumptions, question, question, question. The first day you get to a job, most places, you're told, okay, here's your desk, here's your chair, this is who you report to, this is how you do email, here's your computer, go make things. And you're encouraged to keep your hands and feet and ideas inside the dominant role-based structure that you have at all times. We live in a world where that's no longer scalable or expedient, not just for business, but for life. Don't do that. To develop a new culture, a better culture, a culture that is built for the networked age, built for networked products, built for distributed decision making, we have to do new things and we have to think in new ways. We have to challenge old assumptions about what it means to be an organization, come up with new models, and test them frequently, get some feedback, and explore. So we just saw Google. And we know that sometimes we think about risk in terms of just moonshot risk, right? Oh, well, it's just the bottom line. And the bottom line is certainly important, but you can have risk in other ways. You can have people-based risk. People, my friends in information security, encourage us to think about how the weakest link in the chain is typically people. The technologies can typically secure themselves, but the weakest link in the chain is people. And if we understand that when it comes to diversity, the weakest link in the chain is people, then 
lacking diversity is a socially acceptable form of dysfunction and business risk. What do you mean? Well, here you go. A lack of diversity cost Uber $10 billion. Why? They have a culture that is not resilient enough to stand up to strong critique from the people doing work. It is not strong enough as an organization to stand up to moral inquiry. And that's why they're under investigation for products like Grayball. And that's why they're under investigation for wage discrimination. And those things are all very, very important. If you don't consider diversity not just a differentiator for profit, but a moral imperative that protects your business, you're thinking the wrong way. This is my favorite Travis Kalanick quote. As the CEO of the company, it's really, really funny that you would put responsibility on other people, get kicked out of your company, and then try to come back and take the reins and say, no, 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 this is not my fault. The cultures we build are reflected in the products we make. Uber built Grayball to avoid regulators because they have a culture where avoiding regulation and avoiding accountability is socially acceptable. And that's a problem. Diversity debt is not just like a little thing, right? It's possible to have so much funding from all the venture investors in the world and still fail at the most basic level of organizational protection and institutionalization of moral checks and balances. Diversity debt is a concept in org design that says that if we make short-term trade-offs and hire a bunch of tech bros, we will suffer in the long term because that's not a sustainable business model in a pluralistic society. A recent study from 2013 found that women who identified themselves on GitHub were more likely to have their code rejected when they made a pull request, even though they are technically better coders. Women, when no one knows the gender of the code contributor, are better coders than men. That's what this study found. But their code is under more scrutiny when people know the gender of the code contributor. You're missing out on the best developers in any given organization if you're not checking your own biases and your own assumptions as you go. But maybe you're thinking, okay, like, okay, I get it. Diversity is cool, it's important, whatever. I'm already sold, help me defend it. So here's a couple stats. In the UK, senior executive diversity increased earnings before interest in taxes by 3.5%. A McKinsey report found that companies that score in the top 25% for racial and ethnic diversity were 35% more likely to have returns above the industry mean. If you have gender diversity, you're 15% more likely to have returns above the industry mean. And for every 10% increase in racial and ethnic diversity on a senior executive team, you move your bottom line up about almost a percent. This is the power of one woman, though. Having a single woman on a board at the executive level means that you're more likely to get higher returns on equity and higher net income growth. That's the power of one woman in a single company. But then we have stories like this. 
where companies are missing out on opportunities to protect their people. Companies are missing out on opportunities to ensure that the products they build and the cultures they have are moral and care about people. And it's, it's all fine and good to talk about profit and to talk about business cases when it comes to diversity. And I think that that's an important factor, but it's not the only factor. The thing is, is on the other side of this, there are real human beings that are not speculations about what diversity does. There are real women who really work as engineers and designers at Google who were really affected by the events of the last week. There are real women who work in engineering at GitHub, Salesforce, Uber, who are trying to survive this industry, who are trying to survive every single day sometimes. And it's our responsibility to do better for them and to do better by them by making sure that stories like this never happen again. Diversity is not a zero-sum game. It's something that affects all of us. And I didn't have a really good picture of myself, <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit about my own experiences. My parents are from Brazil. My father moved to the United States in 1988, and he was a hospital janitor. My mother didn't work for the first few years of my life. My father ended up building a real estate business and contributing to this country and eventually became a citizen. But not without much struggle. And in my own life, I've had a lot of struggle too. There were times when we were homeless. There were times when we moved three to five times a year. And when products ask me, what middle school did you go to? It's like, well, what was I in the mood to answer that day? Which one was the one that felt the most comfortable to use? When products ask me, I actually saw this one once, where did you buy your first summer home? As a security question. <laughs> I was flabbergasted. <laughs> where did you buy your first summer home? Oh, I don't know, was that uh, while I was eating macaroni and cheese in the back of a, in the back of a Volvo? living on the streets? I don't know. So the thing is, is product design is a direct reflection of org design. The thing is, the cultures we have generate products. The decisions we make, the considerations we make, the trade-offs that we balance at any given point amount to the perspectives that we have. Your organization is a product, and culture is your artifact. A design org as we've learned over time, is a human institution designed to validate a product under conditions of extreme bias. And what I mean by that is you get some business bro who comes up and says, hey, we've got this idea, go build it, right? And that was kind of where we were 20, 30 years ago, if they even said go build it, right? Sometimes they'd be like, well, we'll just let the engineers build it, we don't need design oh, we're just like replatforming this thing and it's gonna look exactly like it used to look. We don't need design. What we've learned as designers is we have already been doing org design in advocating for UX, right? That UX is even a thing, that this conference is even here, means that we've built cultures that sustain design, and not just design, but design thinking and design accountability, design morality. We've tried to turn design towards people and therefore turn business towards people. We learned how to bring organizations closer to their users by telling stories. And yet, the diversity gap in both gender and racial ethnic diversity exists. And what I've learned is you can't 
have design thinking without org design. The two things go together like peanut butter and jelly. In order to be effective at designing products, you have to be effective at sustaining cultures that make good products not only desirable, but necessary. The experience of inclusion for your own people in your own teams is the product of your responsibilities as a manager, as an organizational designer. So do we have any product managers in the room? One, two. If you were given a quarter billion dollars to solve the diversity problem and you couldn't do it, what do you think would happen to you? Do you think you'd be fired? Because <laughs> I think you'd be fired. <laughs> and yet, Google has blown a quarter billion dollars, over a quarter billion dollars, billion with a B, on trying to solve this problem and has done very, very little. I, uh, I saw a report that came out last week and they've increased, I think it was Latino representation by 2%. And that's, that's it. Even the most powerful ideas in the world, just they can't function in persistent organizational dysfunction. They just can't take off. When organizations get in the way of caring about the right things or when their values are misaligned, they're going to miss out on huge opportunities. We've heard a lot about humility. We've heard a lot about patience. We've heard a lot about reaching out to others in Dan's talk and in some of the others that have been presented here the past two days. And it's been amazing because I feel like some of my work has been done for me. I don't have to like read all my slides and I was able to remove some. But the idea that we need an accountability mindset for design is crucial. The idea that we design products and we design cultures is crucial. Effective product teams align the organization. And we've learned how to do this. I mean, some of you have heard Jared speak before. But we do this through user research. We do it by telling effective stories. So what I want to talk about for like the next few minutes is how we do what I'm calling participatory org design. How we do participatory design in an organizational design setting. We have to understand first and foremost that what we make is a direct reflection of who we are. And as managers, the organizations that we have in support are, they're our design, right? So like as a designer working on an application doing interaction design, that UI is your product and it's a direct, it's a direct reflection of the trade-offs that you're making. Whereas when you're a manager and when you're leading an organization, that organization and its culture are the product of your design. So I asked the question, how might we use the design process to make more people-centered organizations? And we know how to do this. Raise your hand if this is new for you. Has everyone seen this? Okay, cool. This is the D-School's design thinking model. And what we want to do is get to inclusion. So we're going to empathize, ideate, define the problem, prototype, test, use that feedback to iterate. Inclusion is creating the necessary conditions for organizational reflection at scale. That's it, it's creating a culture that can course correct over time by knowing that it has blind spots. It's essentially like putting mirrors on your bike or on your car. Inclusion helps you balance your organization, it helps you balance your perspectives, and it helps create a culture of accountability. When we have managers who say, oh, I have an open door policy, yeah, no, and I'm so glad that that came up because it's true, like, you need to, as a leader, at any level, it doesn't matter if you have a title or not, 
you need to be constantly collecting feedback in order to check yourself, check your assumptions, and check your culture. Participatory design is a process that basically brings everyone in. And it says, okay, well, we're gonna listen to a bunch of people, see what's going on, and try to understand this very complex system at scale. And you can use this whether you work in finance, energy, aviation, I don't know, hotels, logistics. You can use participatory design to design almost anything. And I was so glad that we had a talk earlier today about designing a company because I think that that's exactly right. You can design a culture. You can design your team's culture. You can design the interventions that help you collect feedback and that help you change your process. And you might be thinking, well, hey, hold on, I didn't sign up for this, right? Like, I'm a designer, I work on pixels, or I'm a designer and I do interaction design, or I do information architecture, or I do educational design. But we are working in such a complex world that now we're signing up for, whether we know it or not, to design things that never knew they had users coming. Voice interfaces is a perfect example, right? Like, 10 years ago, who thought, oh, Chat is like the next mode of human interaction. And who knows what's after that? And we're always meeting new systems, new use cases, and new places where there are users we have not accounted for. And what we have to do is we have to build on that. We have to ask good questions and inform ourselves to reduce risk, reduce uncertainty, and clarify expectations. The startup culture the startup world will encourage you to build, measure, learn, which is great when you're not dealing with people, right? In a startup, this is fine. When you're building products, this is safe. When you're building for people, if you build, measure, learn, you will have the IBM hack a hairdryer campaign. Don't do it. Instead, listen, include, and empower. And so we're gonna talk about what that looks like. Listen, people are complex. We've heard this before, but people are complex. Look at all the things that make up a person and where they're at on any given day. Race, education, sexuality, ability, age, gender, ethnicity, culture, language, neurodiversity. There's a lot of different things that make human beings. Human beings are inherently complex. And as we start to acknowledge these complexities, you might feel a little overwhelmed and say, well, how do I design for so many complex people at scale. Here's a simple question. Who's telling your inclusion story? I worked, I've worked in a lot of companies. I've worked in a lot of different organizations of various sizes. And what I've found is the companies that sold inclusion from the top because they had a VP of color, that was just PR. It was all fluff. I worked for a company where one time I was told that my hair was unprofessional because it was curly like this. And I was told that I would not be allowed to attend any meetings or present any of my work until I got a haircut. I was told in no uncertain terms that my appearance was haphazard, shabby, and unprofessional, despite my hair being completely fully natural. And I appreciate those of you in the room who are shaking your heads and saying that's terrible. That's awesome. Thank you. It makes me feel a little bit better. But who's telling your inclusion story? Do you have one VP or a token person of color? Don't do that. And what I mean is, 
if you don't have a story that's coming from the bottom up, if people at the bottom of your organization aren't talking about how they feel included, how they feel empowered, then you're probably failing. And it's time to get out there and do some research and understand what's really going on in your organization. And if you need to source that by commissioning a team, do it. If you can talk to your people and encourage them to be honest and candid, do it. Whatever you do, I'm not here to give you, you know, do this one thing today, but you should ask this question. You should ask this question and you should try to understand who's on the other side of your organization and what do you look like to them? What do you look like to the outside world? Do your job descriptions balance out gender? Are you using a bias reduction tool so that people of all genders feel welcome, so that they feel empowered to apply for a job in a culture that might look scary to them? Are you removing the risk on their side? Are you designing a service experience that encourages people to join your organization? Are you selling your organization as a place that people want to work? And not just selling, but are you designing your organization as a place that people would feel comfortable working? Because unfortunately, the other side, for those of you who know Erica Hall, okay, she was an engineer at Google. And she wrote this really touching post called The Other Side of Diversity. And it was about her experiences as a black woman working at Google and other companies. Saying, hey, I never thought of myself as a black person until there were issues. Until I didn't feel included. Until I didn't feel empowered. And then it was really obvious. And I, I just kept doing me, but it was really difficult. Do people want to work in your organization? Do they feel included? Do they feel empowered? There are some gender decoder tools uh, that you can use on your job listings. If you control job listings, awesome. If you don't, talk to HR and just be like, hey, who does our job listings? Could we like run those through a, a gender decoder? Like, Would that be all right? And some of your companies might have a big legal process for doing that. But it's worth asking questions and finding out who you need to talk to to make that happen. Next is what are the numbers? How many underrepresented people are making it into your pipeline in the first place? If you're interviewing, how many of you do interviewing? There's a lot of hands. How many people? If you don't know this number off the top of your head, you should. Go ask. Go ask questions. How many people that make it through the first round are extended offers? What's your attrition rate? Do people quit in the first 90 days? Do they quit at a year? Are you looking at those things as a manager and trying to design for use cases, right? We already know how to do this. When you look at product drop-off rates, when you look at checkout rates, when you look at product adoption, everyday use, I mean, we've learned to design for metrics. These metrics are not out there and invisible to us. We consider these things every day, but on a smaller scale. All we have to do is scale up the lens of our inquiry, and we're empowered to make real product decisions. How do we include? Ask yourself, how do we value difference? Do we have a definition of culture add, right? Are people adding to our culture? Are there gaps that we know we have? Are there blind spots we're trying to design for? If we have 12 white people in an engineering department, could we add some perspective? And if we do, how do we do so responsibly? Are we designing the service experience for people who onboard at our company so that they feel comfortable and empowered working with new teams on day one, no matter what their race or gender? Make it a priority to welcome people who are most different from you because you'll see the biggest results. 
that's how you build a resilient culture. That's how you build a culture that welcomes change. It's how you build a culture that welcomes conflict and welcomes discussion. And by conflict, I mean meaningful conflict. It's not just getting up here and, and yelling at each other, right? It's about having trade-offs and discussing trade-offs in a reasonable, responsible, and respectful way. How are your employees doing? Has anyone ever had somebody quit on them? Sucks, doesn't it? Right? Especially when you like that person. I mean, maybe you've had some bad apples who wash out, right? But like, I'm talking about the good ones. How effective or useful is your onboarding? Are you setting people up for success? Are you welcoming them? Are you designing a service experience? Do you have a concept of hospitality when you bring people into your organization? Do they feel comfortable moving about in your company and asking questions and being able to make mistakes and break things? And do you have accountability to hold yourselves accountable to them? If you don't do exit interviews, start doing them. If you don't do regular one-on-ones, start doing them. I work at Pivotal, and all these opinions here today are my own. Just want to say that since I mentioned my company's name. But we do regular one-on-ones. And we do them as a way to balance the organization and create a culture of resilience. We talk to each other all the time, no matter the level, right? And we have a very flat organization where people can walk up to you and say, hey, do you have 30 minutes? I want to chat. And you can talk across practices. You can talk across groups. And if you start doing that with people and you give them, if you give your, your employees the ability to hold you accountable and you say, hey, what's not working? What could I do for you? I mean, those are really safe questions that somebody the first couple times might not have an answer. They might be afraid of this like boss employee paradigm, right? But you can design for that by showing them it's safe. You can demonstrate your own vulnerability to get people to change, to get people to open up, to get people to give you real critical feedback when it's really important. Because what you don't want to do is be in a position where you invite criticism or risk. I mean, in the days of social media, you're, you're talking about compound losses if you do the wrong thing when suddenly the entire internet can rage at you and say, that was dumb. You don't want <laughs> to be responsible for one of those days. And if you're in the business of generating ideas and you're in the business of saying, hey, we have this great idea. We're going to build a campaign that's going to get women excited about tech. Cool. That's awesome. Are you solving a real need with that? Or are you asking women to hack a hairdryer? Are you respecting people where they're already at? Are you respecting their experience? Are you respecting their culture? Are you respecting their gender? Are you treating them like people? Ask those questions. Design for those questions. And empower. You have to design experiences as a manager where people feel empowered. And we do this through user research all the time. User research is a way that we empower users to course correct the ship when we don't know what comes next. In the same way, user research with your own employees is going to help you course correct. But you have to have difficult conversations. You have to give people the power to shut you down. And you have to not fall in love with your own ideas. Ask. How might this hurt somebody before you put something in the wild, if you can help it, especially if it's a people thing, right? Hey, we have this diversity campaign. Great, could we get a couple people to look at it and see if it's like a really good idea or, you know, ask what could go wrong? How might people hate this? What could hurt them about this? Is there anything here that might offend somebody? And not just offend them, but could it alienate them? Could it hurt their feelings?
and then course correct often. The idea is to be agile in your org design, to build feedback loops to be effective. And you only get to succeed if you can demonstrate that you listened, that you included, and you empowered. This is the balanced people team model that I have like started riffing on with my own team to see how we could be more effective at designing for people. So we have UX business and technology, but one of the ways that we bring people in is we have people operations, advocacy and empathy, which is really your job as a manager, and then a practices representative, maybe from another organization or a different practice, right? So you create balance in your hiring pipeline and you get multiple perspectives on somebody as they move through your process. And I didn't wanna get into too many details on hiring because I really wanted to focus on just some big picture challenges to you, the audience, and to myself as well. And I think that if I can leave you with any one thing today, it's that reducing the distance between you and the employees and candidates that you are designing your organization for is the biggest responsibility you could have. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Chicago Camp's 2017 Prototypes, Process, and Play Design Leadership Conference podcast, sponsored by Balsamic. With Balsamic mockups, anyone can design great interfaces. And in partnership with Simplecast, publish your podcasts the easy way at simplecast.fm. Learn more about Chicago Camps events on our website at chicagocamps.org.